Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Matthew 1 and 2. Listen carefully, because this is God's gospel. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not the, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there for and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises, the shadows, the types, the prophecies of the Old Testament. And help us to put our faith in the King of the Jews and the King of heaven and earth. Do this by the power of your Spirit working in us and among us. And in the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we considered the visit of the wise men in the first half of Matthew 2. Today, we're going to broaden the lens a little and look at the five fulfillment passages in Matthew 1 and 2 that I just read. Why was Herod so threatened by the birth of Christ? What was at stake? And why were the wise men willing to travel so far To worship the Christ. What was the driving impulse? Matthew answers these questions for us. He tells us what was significant about the birth of this child in the first two chapters of his gospel. By showing that Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. In the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel... Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry back to David and then even further back to Abraham. One of the things this tells us is that Jesus is the promised seed that would crush the serpent's head. And also, He's the promised Messiah who would reign on the throne of David forever. 
And then from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 2, Matthew links Jesus to to the Old Testament five different times in five different ways. And as we survey these five fulfillment pillars, we'll find out why Herod wanted to kill the Christ and why the wise men traveled to worship the Christ. Like a good architect, Matthew has structured his narrative carefully and thoughtfully. He begins with Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1 to show that Jesus came from the designated line at the designated time and in accordance with a designated plan. That's the foundation of what comes next. On top of this genealogical foundation, Matthew erects five pillars, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and ending in chapter 2, verse 23. Matthew gives us five fulfillments of what has been said through the prophets. So these come in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, chapter 2, verses 6, 15, 17, 18, and 23. So the first two fulfillment passages are what we'll call precise fulfillments. And the last three are what we'll call patterned fulfillments. What do I mean by precise fulfillments and patterned fulfillments? Well, when we're looking at a precise fulfillment in the New Testament, we can say this is precisely that. In other words, this New Testament event is precisely what that Old Testament prophecy was talking about. For example, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit from heaven onto the believers in Jerusalem, you remember Peter stood up and he preached a sermon that explained what was going on in terms of the prophecy in Joel 2. And in the King James Version of Acts 2.16, Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, this outpouring of the Spirit is precisely that which Joel said would happen in Joel 2. So in a precise fulfillment like this, there's there's essentially a one-for-one correspondence between what is happening in the New Testament and what the Old Testament prophecy said would happen. Now, patterned fulfillments work differently. When we're looking at a patterned fulfillment in the New Testament, we can say this is patterned after that. In other words, this New Testament event is patterned after that Old Testament event. Patterned patterned fulfillment is also sometimes called typology. And I'll explain patterned fulfillments more when we get to them. For now, let's just look at the first two precise fulfillments. This is precisely that. The first of Matthew's five pillars, five fulfillment pillars, takes us back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 7 to 11, we read there that there will be a child king, a boy king from the line of David who will be called Mighty God and Prince of Peace and Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And this child king will come into the world in a most unusual way. He'll be born 
of a virgin. And in Matthew 1, 18-25, Matthew is saying this is precisely that. This Mary is precisely that virgin in Isaiah 7. This Jesus is precisely that God-child in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. I know there's, there's some controversy about that, that prophecy in Isaiah, but oh, we talked about that last year. Maybe we'll come to it again. This child in Bethlehem is precisely that prince who will reign forever and establish a world kingdom of righteousness and peace and upon whose shoulders the world's government will rest. We need to read Isaiah 7 to 11 as having its fulfillment in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So that's the first fulfillment pillar. This is precisely that. The second pillar in Matthew 2 verse 6 has to do with the place of this boy king's birth. The wise men didn't know where in Israel the Messiah was to be born. Uh, So they traveled to Jerusalem, the capital city, thinking that's as good a place to start as any. When they arrived, they started asking Jerusalem citizens, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And the current king of the Jews, the jealous and the malicious king Herod, naturally wants to help, as it were. Herod's chief priests and scribes inform Herod, who then informs the wise men about the prophecy from Micah 5. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod and the wise men from the east find out at the same time that when the Messiah comes... He'll come out of Bethlehem, a small town about five miles south of Jerusalem, the same place where King David was born. Again, this is precisely that. Jesus was born in this particular town, Bethlehem. Micah predicted that the Messiah would would be born in that same town. So those are the two precise fulfillments in Matthew's nativity. Precise fulfillments like these build up our faith in a unique way. They remind us that God keeps all His promises with no remainder. They assure us that God's written Word and God's Word made flesh can be trusted fully. It's a solid foundation to stand on. Precise fulfillments impress upon us That God is sovereign over all of creation and all of history all the time. Nothing happens outside of His control and everything happens in accordance with His will. In accordance with the counsel of His will, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. Seeing these precise fulfillments is somewhat analogous to touching the wounds of Christ, as Thomas did. Thomas's doubt turned into faith after he saw and touched Christ's side and hands. And our weak faith can be reinforced and fortified when we see how Jesus precisely and directly and literally fulfills certain Old Testament prophecies that came hundreds of years before. 
Well, now we come to the three patterned fulfillments in the second half of Matthew 2. In a patterned fulfillment, we see that this is patterned after that. This event, for example, in the life of Jesus is patterned after that Old Testament event. Second half of Matthew 2 is notoriously puzzling for Bible readers and scholars. Many books and articles have been written on just what Matthew is trying to do, and specifically on how Matthew is using the Old Testament Scriptures. So what is Matthew doing here? At first glance, it might seem like he's just taking random Old Testament verses and trying to force them into the story of Christ. Well, at least that's how a lot of modern scholars interpret Matthew 2. Unbelieving scholars, liberal scholars. And one conservative scholar, an author, humorously describes how liberal scholars view Matthew's use of Scripture in Matthew 2. He says that according to these unbelieving interpreters of Scripture, watching Matthew try to squeeze these Old Testament passages into the life of Jesus, he says, is like watching a middle-aged husband whose waistline has grown an inch or two since Thanksgiving trying to squeeze himself into the new jeans that his wife bought him for Christmas. No matter how much he sucks in his gut, they just really don't fit. And that's what liberal, unbelieving scholars think is going on here in Matthew. That's what Matthew is trying to do with the Old Testament, they say. Here's an example of of what one famous skeptical scholar from the 20th century said about Matthew's use of prophecy in chapter 2. He wrote, Matthew is doing what he so often did. In his eagerness, he is finding a prophecy where no prophecy is. End quote. But the problem with this interpretation is that it views the Old Testament text as a pair of jeans that must fit a certain size body, a preconceived, pre-designed body. It assumes that all the fulfillments must be precise fulfillments. This is precisely that in some literal, direct, one-for-one way. But Matthew doesn't doesn't share that assumption that all prophecy fulfillment, prophetic fulfillments must be precise fulfillments, where this is precisely that. He has another category of prophetic fulfillment, as do the other New Testament authors. We're calling it patterned fulfillment, where this is patterned after that. And that's the best way to make sense of these fulfillment passages in the second half of Matthew 2. Matthew's not thumbing through his Old Testament looking for random proof texts that Jesus might somehow, some way, remotely fulfill if you use your imagination. No, he's reading through the whole story of Israel and noticing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how this story of Christ is patterned after that story of Israel. Let me say that again because it's important. Matthew's reading through 
the story of Israel in the Old Testament and noticing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how this story of Christ is patterned after that story of Israel. So let's dive in and see what Matthew's up to. The first pattern that Matthew notices in the life of Christ is the out of Egypt pattern. Read verses 13 to 15 with me in Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the prophet that Matthew refers to in verse 15 is Hosea, the first of the twelve minor prophets. The quote at the end of verse 15 is from Hosea 11, verse 1. And in the original context, Hosea is remembering how God called Israel out of Egyptian bondage in the first part of the book of Exodus. So as Matthew looks back in, in history to the Exodus through the lens of Hosea 11.1, 1, he notices a similar pattern in the early life of Jesus. Matthew sees that Israel's exodus out of Egypt is fulfilled in a new way by Jesus. So what's this mean? What's the purpose? What's Matthew's message here? It's that Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. He's the new and better and greater Israel. You may recall that right before God brought Israel out of Egypt, God referred to Israel as His Son. In Exodus 4, God tells Moses, Say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is My Son, My firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Matthew tells the story of Jesus in such a way as to show that Jesus is a new, improved, better, greater Israel. New, improved, and greater son. Firstborn son. This becomes especially clear in the following chapters of Matthew's Gospel. All the way through chapter 7, well really in many ways, through the whole gospel, but especially through chapter 7. I want you to listen to how John Stott summarizes the patterned fulfillments in the first seven chapters of Matthew. This is a really good quote, so listen to what John Stott says. Quote, As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of of Herod. So, so Herod is the new Pharaoh. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the River Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness of Zin for 40 days, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. Sorry, 40 years, 40 days, if I didn't say that right. And as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus 
from the Mount of Beatitudes gave His disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. And so there's this typology going on or this pattern fulfillment going on in Matthew's Gospel. And we see it in our text today in a particular way. You'll, you'll even notice that Matthew says that they left by night. Okay, there's, there's this language that takes us back to Exodus. In some ways, there's two Exoduses in that text. There's the Exodus from Israel and Herod, which is the new Egypt and the new Pharaoh, but then there's the Exodus out of the literal Egypt. And in a sense, both of those fulfill that prophecy from Hosea 11.1. And Matthew, Matthew's goal is not just to do something artistic and literary and interesting. The point in presenting Jesus as a new Israel is to tell us that Jesus came to do what Israel failed to do and could not do. Israel was supposed to keep God's law, but they broke all of it. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, but they hid their light under a bushel. Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth, but they lost their flavor. Israel couldn't even produce the Messiah on its own. God had to step in and become Israel's Messiah himself. Christmas is the story of God coming to earth to do what no man, no nation could do. It's as if God looked around and said, if I'm going to keep my promises to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, if I'm going to keep my promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, 12, 15, and 17, if I'm going to keep my promises to Israel, if I'm going to do what I said I would do through Israel and her Messiah, I'm going to have to go down and do it all myself. Every bit of it. God needed a better Israel, a better son, a better representative, better priests, better kingdom to fulfill his purpose and his promises. So he sent his eternally begotten son to do what Adam and Israel were unable to do. That's the point of all this typology. It's not just cool, it points to Jesus. It's the gospel. That's the point of these pattern fulfillments in Matthew. So we've discussed the first pattern fulfillment, the exodus of Jesus from Egypt in Matthew 2, is patterned after the exodus of Israel from Egypt. The second pattern fulfillment has to do with Israel's return from exile. Matthew presents the coming of Christ into the world as the end of Israel's Babylonian captivity. Because it is. He doesn't just present it that way. It is. If, if I were to ask you to name the two most important historical events in Israel's history, which two events would you name? I'm, I'm going to submit there's only one right answer to that question. There are a lot of important redemptive historical events in Israel's history, but there are two that stick out above the rest. And do you know what they are? At the top of the list, of course, is the Exodus. 
Israel's exodus from Egypt, is the single most significant redemptive historical event in Israel's story. That's why the Exodus theme shows up all over the place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Matthew's first pattern fulfillment, as we saw, has to do with the Exodus from Egypt. That's central to the story of Scripture. So what's the second most important event in the redemptive history of Israel? It's the return from exile. It's kind of like a new Exodus in a way. Israel's return from Babylonian captivity is the second most significant redemptive historical event in Israel's story. But there's, a, there's kind of a twist. There's a catch. It never fully happened. It happened in part. So the captives, some captives did come back. It, so it happened in part and in a small way, but it never happened in the way the prophets envisioned it would happen. Sure, some of the Israelites came back from exile and, and built a new temple even in Jerusalem. But the new temple was nothing compared to the old one. And it certainly wasn't anything like the temple that Ezekiel envisioned in Ezekiel 40-47. to 47. And if you remember, the old men who had seen the old temple, they were, they were crying because of how inglorious this new temple was. None of the Old Testament prophecies of worldwide peace and righteousness had even begun to be fulfilled before Jesus was born. The promise of the Davidic king who would reign forever had not been fulfilled. The new covenant promised by Jeremiah had not been established. The temple envisioned by Ezekiel had not been built. Israel had been constantly ruled by Gentile empires from Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And it wasn't always bad necessarily. It wasn't always evil. But it wasn't the vision that the prophets laid out of Israel and Israel's king ruling over the Gentiles. So for all intents and purposes, the exile was not over. Israel was still in captivity when Jesus came on to the scene. That's part of the meaning of the genealogy which mentions the Babylonian captivity, implying that it's ending with the coming of Jesus, even in that genealogy. But Matthew's telling us in Matthew 1 and 2 that in Jesus, the exile is coming to an end. And he tells us this particularly in verses 16 to 18. Look at those with me. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled. Here's another fulfillment passage. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, this is from Jeremiah 31.15, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So what Herod does in verse 16 is a horrific atrocity, but our focus is going to be on the prophecy in verses 17 and 18. This prophecy, as I said, comes from Jeremiah 31.15. And when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel... 
he's referring, to, of course, to the wife of the patriarch Jacob. And Rachel was the, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel, Rachel mourned her infertility early on in her marriage to Jacob. And then she died giving birth to Benjamin. Because of this, she took on a symbolic role for God's people. Among ancient Jews, Rachel became the image of the ultimate sorrowful mother. Now, so that's some background. But before we can understand the connection that Matthew makes between the weeping of Rachel and the weeping of the mothers in Bethlehem, we need to ask, why does Jeremiah 31.15, in its original context, why does Jeremiah 31.15 that Matthew quotes Picture Rachel weeping in Rama. Rama is important here. And there are two reasons. First, Rama is near where Rachel was buried. So Jeremiah is picturing Rachel weeping in her grave. And second, Rama is where the Babylonian army gathered the captives of Judah before taking them away from their homeland into Babylonian exile. So, Jeremiah 31.15 depicts Rachel crying out from her tomb as her children, children of Israel, are being taken into exile. As they kind of walk by her grave, as it were. And the idea in Jeremiah 31.15 is that Israel's exile called forth the tears of Israel's sorrowful mother, Rachel. As her children walk by her tomb on their way to Babylon, she cries out with inconsolable weeping. So, okay, so that's what Jeremiah 31.15 is getting at. So now we have to ask, why does Matthew quote this verse and apply it to the massacre in Bethlehem? How are Rachel's tears at the beginning of the exile fulfilled in the tears of these Bethlehem mothers. The key to understanding what Matthew's doing is to see Rachel's tears as the tears of exile. That, that important event, the exile. Rachel sheds her tears from the grave at the beginning of Judah's exile to Babylon. And Matthew's point is that the tears of exile which began in Jeremiah's day are coming to an end. Because the exile is coming to an end. Rachel's tears have culminated. They've come to their end in the tears of these Bethlehem mothers. The weeping Rachel marked the beginning of exile and now the weeping of the Bethlehem mothers marks the end of exile. In other words, with Jesus, with the coming of Jesus, the trail of tears is finally ending. With the coming of Jesus, the exile is coming to an end. The heir of David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived. Exiles, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel's temple has come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. Christ, the Lord God in human form, has brought the tears of exile to an end because He has brought the exile to an end. And soon this heir of David will establish the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, in that same section of Jeremiah. 
And he will establish that new covenant in his blood. That's, that's really the whole message of Jeremiah 31. Unlike, unlike most of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31 is not one of sorrow, but of joy and anticipation and hope, we can say. The verse right after the one that Matthew quotes says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. So he's saying, stop crying. That's the very next verse, Jeremiah 31, 16. And he's looking ahead to the end of the exile, to the new covenant. And he's saying, at that point, it's going to be time to stop crying. And why should God's people refrain from weeping? Because as the rest of that verse says, Jeremiah 31, 16, God's people finally, quote, shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future says the Lord. And a little earlier in chapter 30, Jeremiah looks ahead to the time beyond the exile when they will, quote, serve the Lord their God and David, or the ultimate descendant of David. Okay, so all this, all these prophecies from Jeremiah are being fulfilled here in Matthew. Remember last week I, I reminded you that when, when a New Testament author cites a verse, a, a passage, what we really need to do is go back and read the context. He's kind of it's kind of like a footnote that takes us back for so that we can read it for ourselves because there's not enough room to quote the whole thing. So Matthew's purpose in quoting from Jeremiah is to tell us that the exile is finally over. The promises and prophecies are being fulfilled. The crying is coming to an end. The reign of a new king under a new covenant is to use Jesus's language at hand. Tears shed by the mothers in Bethlehem marked not only the end of exile, but also the beginning of the reign of the one who will shed tears of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And who will eventually, when he restores all things at the end, wipe away every tear. Revelation 21 verse 4. So Matthew's first patterned fulfillment is Jesus and the Exodus. His second one is Jesus and the return from exile. And that brings us to his third and final patterned fulfillment in this section. And it's the most puzzling one of all. It comes at the very end of Matthew's nativity in verse 23. And let's just look at verse 23. And Joseph came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He, that is the Christ, shall be called a Nazarene. What makes verse 23 so difficult is that there's no prophecy anywhere in the whole Bible that says Anything like this, at least not explicitly. In fact, you can go even further. Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nor is Nazarene. Nazareth, Nazarene, they're not mentioned in the Old Testament. Nor is Nazareth even mentioned in any ancient Jewish writing outside the Old Testament. So what's Matthew up to? Matthew 20, 
Matthew 2.23 has caused heartburn for many Bible readers and Bible interpreters, especially in recent times. Bible skeptics have cited this verse as an obvious mistake in Scripture. Matthew must have lost his head. He, he says that there's this quote from the Old Testament and we can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. After all, not even one Old Testament prophet says that the Christ shall be called a Nazarene. That, that quote isn't found in even one Old Testament prophet and yet Matthew puts it in the mouth of multiple prophets. Look at verse 23. Look how it's worded. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Plural. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so since this quote at the end of Matthew 2.23 doesn't show up in any of the prophets, how do we make sense of this verse? What's What's the right way to understand it? Can we defend it? Well, you can find out by coming back next Sunday. There's a really good answer and to these questions. And the solution, though, I'm going to have to leave you hanging until next week because to talk about the solution and to really just talk about this verse uh, and its layers and depth, we need, a, we need an entire sermon. So you'll have to wait. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get you back. And in closing today, I want to make one application about Christ and His fulfillment of the Old Testament. We've discussed in some depth two precise fulfillments and two patterned fulfillments in Matthew 1 and 2. And all of these fulfillment formulas point to Jesus as the fulfillment of all the types and shadows and promises and redemptive historical events in the Old Covenant. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. But we, we must come away from this text with more than a theological and literary understanding of what Matthew's doing here. It's not enough to see Matthew's typological connections with your intellectual and theological eyes. You must also see with your spiritual eyes, the eyes of your heart, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. Because this is the gospel that we're talking about. It's not just literature that we're talking about, it's the gospel. And when it comes to the gospel, there's seeing it, and then there's seeing it. There's hearing the gospel, and then there's hearing the gospel. Jesus said of false believers, seeing, they see not. And hearing, they hear not. Make sure you're not seeing and hearing everything Matthew is saying and doing just with the eyes and ears of your intellect. Without actually seeing and hearing what he's saying and doing. See, if you understand what Matthew's saying at the level of your heart, your response will be to find your spiritual fulfillment in the one who is the fulfillment of everything 
in the Old Testament. It's important to understand how Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. That's why we talk about the theological and literary and typological aspects here. We need to know how to read the Bible. It's good to have a biblical methodology as we approach the text of Scripture. But it's equally important for you to be fulfilled by the one who fulfills these prophecies. And that's, just, that's not just a cute wordplay that a preacher likes to use. Part of Matthew's message is that Jesus is the spiritual fulfillment of everything the exodus and the return from exile signified. Jesus came to fill up His people with good gifts. Jesus came to give His people fulfillment in Him. In Luke 1, Mary says in her song that the Lord fills up the hungry. In particular, the Lord fills up those who are spiritually hungry. And the verb fill up in Mary's song, is related to this word fulfillment. Our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be fulfilled or filled up by Christ alone. The one who fulfills all the promises is the one who can give, and the only one who can give, lasting fulfillment. The only one who can fill you up with good things. The journey of the wise men from the east was primarily a spiritual journey that reached its fulfillment when they fell down and worshipped the infant king of the Jews in Bethlehem. They found their fulfillment. They were filled up in their soul by submitting themselves in body and soul in worship to the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament. And their long journey was worth it because at the end of it, they were able to fulfill the very purpose for which God made them, to worship God. The purpose of every person who ever lives is to become a worshiper of Jesus Christ. A worshiper of Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. A worshiper of Jesus Christ every day. No human can experience fullness or fulfillment. No one can ever experience what Mary calls being filled up by the Lord until he submits everything, everything in his life to King Jesus. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing that. Lord, we praise the name of Jesus Christ because He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of everything. He is our God and our Savior. Help us, Father, by the power of Your Spirit to worship Him, to submit our lives to Him, to be living sacrifices for His sake. Amen.